As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. One of Kenny's claims to fame is the fact that he would um, do aggravated burglaries on drug dealers' houses and steal their drugs and their money. So uh, he he said, when I do my run-throughs, I I get nervous beforehand, so I have to back one out. So um, they said, OK, we'll leave that there. Thanks very much. Although we do have a photo of him holding it up, smiling. Hello, Australian true crime listeners. 
That is the voice of legendary homicide detective Roland Legg. As I know you know, our podcast is based in Melbourne, which became the world's most locked down city at some stage last year. I can't remember exactly when, because I was trying not to keep track of such depressing developments by then. But in and around all of our lockdowns and restrictions, we had one little live show that kept being postponed. Roland Legg was standing by to be our special guest for that show. Well, it's finally happening at the Yarraville Club on April 8. That's just a couple of weeks away, and thanks to the end of restrictions, we've even been allowed to release more tickets. So there's a link in the show notes to this episode and also on our Facebook page, or you can just Google Australian True Crime Yarraville Club, that'll work as well, and we would love to see you there. Emily and I will be on stage with Roland and you can ask him questions right there in the room and he will answer them. You can also buy our books and get them signed and we'll just be very, very happy to be out of the house. So that's all very good news. And in other good news, Roland Legg is our guest on the show this week. And we begin with a bit of background into the early days of his stunning career. By the end of his career, Roland Legg was one of five senior homicide detectives who'd led the squad through some of the most notorious cases in Australian history. Along with Ron Idles, Charlie Bazina, Jeff Maher and Lucho Rovis, it was Roland who had the responsibility of investigating the Melbourne gang murders, the Frankston serial killer, notorious underworld figures like Christopher Dale Flannery, also known as Mr Rent-A-Kill, whose many hits they investigated before ultimately having to investigate his own murder. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Roland was the lead investigator on the Jaden Lesky case, spending months in the Victorian town of Moi, at first searching for the missing 18-month-old boy who'd been left in the care of his mother's boyfriend, before sadly being called to Blue Rock Dam the day his little body was found. To this day, no one's been convicted of little Jaden's murder. I often think of that case as the kind that would break many coppers, but Roland Legg is made of sterner stuff. He's the personification of old school. Interestingly, though, he doesn't reckon he was a born copper, although I would argue that events have always nudged him in that direction. I had no inclination to, uh, to become a policeman. Uh, at primary school or even early secondary school, but um, I grew up in uh, in East Hawthorne. Um, our neighbour over the back fence, who was um, he and his wife are very close friends of my parents, Harry Pascoe, who's the longest serving coroner, uh, lived over the back fence, and he, his son, and and I were were great mates. The um, Camwell Tram Depot wasn't far away. And uh, there was a house rented a few blocks from where we lived uh, by a tram driver and his conductress wife. Anyway, uh, she she was having a bit of a philander with someone else at the Campbell Tram Depot and um, ultimately her husband was killed and uh, from memory dismembered. And there, in that area there were a lot of quarries uh, where uh, where bricks were manufactured in East Hawthorne, there's a lot of clay. So um, there was a quarry just up from the southeastern freeway on Turak Road, which is now a park on the corner of I think it's Elizabeth Street. Anyway, the um, from memory, the um, the tram driver 
the husband, was uh, in a suitcase or a box of some description deposited in the quarry, mm. uh, which is now a park. So that happened nearby. Um, and these are the sorts of stories you were overhearing, little ears flapping at neighbourhood barbecues. The coroner was there and he was inviting his workmates who were detectives, coppers. Yes, yes. <laughs> I wasn't aware of the detail of it at that time, of course, but uh, I understand there'd be a few old falcons at Studi Bakers parked at the barbecues. <laughs> um, I, remember, uh, I remember one hot night we were at his barbecue, and, uh, or a barbecue, and no doubt there were a lot of police there I wasn't aware of, but uh, he had it. He asked a couple of the police wrestlers to come along. And um, anyway... I didn't I, know there was such thing as police the, wrestlers. Well, there was were then. I think there was a wrestling club or something. Oh. But um, anyway, I remember these blokes that were said to be policemen and they were wrestling in his front garden. Um, he, he had a high fence and it was on the corner of Taronga Road and Pleasant Road in East Hawthorne. And... Um, uh, I can remember them having a bit of a wrestle and it was all a bit of fun and something different to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, then this fellow popped up and one of these wrestlers was put with his uh, his heels on one chair and his tip of his back of his head on another chair and um, uh, a chair under his bottom. And this hypnotist appeared supposedly, <laughs> and pulled the, did a few things, pulled the chair out, and this bloke was like a board with his heels and his wow. head. Anyway, um, I, I go to a lot of old hack lunches, and there's an ex-homicide detective who was there with Mick Miller and, and other names in the, in the 60s, long before my time, and uh, he knew Harry Pascoe very well, and he's, I think he'd be 92 now, this fellow. Uh, he uh, comes regularly, and... Um, we were reminiscing one day about the, the Pascoe family and he, unbeknown to me until shortly before this, he, um, he'd known them very well and I didn't realise. Anyway, I said, telling him the same story about these barbecues and the hypnotism, he said, I was the hypnotist. No! So that would have been about 1966 or something. God, I isn't that yes. wonderful? I imagine and, uh, there would have been a bit of beer flowing at those oh, uh, barbies. Oh, yes, yes. I'm sure there was. I'm sure there was. Harry enjoyed a drink. But he's a great man, great guy. Um, I mean, now we've got half a dozen coroners yes. as well. Well, but it's the then... same if you look back to, um, to what were known as the police surgeons. I mean, uh, people like uh, John Birrell and, uh, and uh, Peter Bush were were one-man bands, whereas now there's a cast of thousands. So they were like the forensic pathologists of their day. Is that what you mean? Um, no, no, they weren't pathologists. They were the doctors who would go and examine rape victims and, oh, yeah. and certify... Um, or like like serious assaults people, and stuff like that? Um, so... Uh, How would that, they get all that work done if you're just one well, person? Well, of course, it I would suppose the population was less then. And, and I think they had the occasional assistant, but it, they certainly didn't have the... Um, uh, the numbers that we have now in in the 60s and 50s and 60s when I was growing up um, we didn't have fluoride in the water and so uh, kids used to have uh, more fillings than they have now and I can remember uh, going for a filling uh, I think it was late in primary school for memory and uh, our dentist was opposite that Campbell famous place the Campbell tram depot um, and I went to have a filling. He, his wife had a surgery, a dental surgery in one front room and he was in the other front room and the residence was at the back. 
And in fact, I think I used to go to Cubs with his son, or I did go to Cubs with his son. They had a son and a daughter. Anyway, uh, this week, I um, on the Tuesday or Wednesday, went to, uh, went to the dentist and had a filling. And um, we're listening to the radio over breakfast the following Saturday morning. And... Um, we sort of guessed what was who it was and what was going on, but on the Friday night, um, the the dentist um, killed his um, his wife and his two children with an axe and a mattock and uh, stuck his head in the gas oven and killed himself, which gives you a bit of an un- strange feeling in the mouth when you know that he was doing all sorts of digging and stabbing in your mouth a couple of days before. It's outrageous, isn't it? Mm. And you knew his son too, like, because so, yes, you did the yeah. cubs. So that was another sort of strange pre-policing connection that yes. was a bit weird. And your wife moved into a murder scene? Yes, well, uh, my wife. It was no longer an active <clears throat> murder scene, I should point out. No, she moved no, into no. She, um, uh, long before I met her, and I met her after I joined the police force, but... Uh, uh, her father was uh, an Anglican minister, Anglican vicar at uh, All Saints Kuyong, which is opposite uh, Scotch College on Glenfrey Road. And uh, the vicarage was in Wellesley Road, which is also off Glenfrey Road. And um, I, can, I, could, I can remember a primary school at Ormond South Primary School that I used to attend uh, at that time, it all being on the news, that the vicar's mother, with whom he lived at the vicarage, um, uh, was murdered by a fellow who was ultimately um, ultimately incarcerated uh, at the governor's pleasure. But, uh, yes, he, he tortured her horrifically and killed the vicar's wife. And um, my, my wife and he, her family were the next family into the vicarage after the, after the murder and um, the Reverend Hall left. So, yes, strange... Strange occurrences looking back. I mean, what it also reminds me of, though, is how much a part of life and the suburbs and normal people's lives violent crime is, really, and that must be something that you've found then in your career as a homicide detective and something that other detectives have said to us, that it's normal people, generally. I mean, I I believe that was actually a random attack, that one in the vicarage, wasn't it? She didn't know her attacker in that case. No, No, that's correct. But generally, the others that you've spoken of are family attacks, partner attacks, it's, it is something that happens in the suburbs, as we always say. Yes, isn't exactly. It? Exactly. It can happen anywhere. And um, uh, it's uh, just a bit out of the ordinary that, although I wasn't directly exposed to any of these things, that they were happening closely yeah. around me in view of um, yep, the occupation that I ultimately uh, took up. Yeah. So when did you start to think about the coppers as a lifestyle? Oh, probably my mid-teens. I wanted to be an architect. Um, so uh, in my mid-teens, I, I don't know, I just became more and more interested in it, much to the horror of my parents. What was it in particular, you think, that piqued your interest with being a cop? Oh, I suppose this interest in crime, nothing, not so much to do with the the, the, the matters that I've discussed but I suppose that focused me a little more on it but it uh, probably not a fascination but certainly an interest you know in, in, in crime programs and crime stories and that sort of thing I just developed more of an interest and it, it just 
took precedence and um, yeah, ultimately it was all I wanted to do. And all I wanted to do in the police force was really to be a detective. I was never interested in the traffic side of things but uh, always interested in uh, the criminal investigation work and I suppose a lot of people have an ambition to go to the Homicide Squad um, because it's the ultimate crime but uh, some people who are very capable detectives um, say that it's the last place they want to go to but we're all different. Yeah, because once you became interested, you were laser-focused, weren't you? Mm. I spoke to you for my book and I was I remember asking you at one point about attending scenes because I know that you oftentimes volunteered, for example, to attend autopsies of children and things of that nature in the place of other detectives who had young children themselves. And you said to me, well, when you are passionate about your work, you will accept certain things that are difficult if you're really passionate about what you're doing. And I've just found that really inspiring. Obviously, I don't do that work, but I've just found that a really inspiring sentiment. It wasn't a regular occurrence, Mm. but particularly when someone is new there, I suppose. Um, And it's probably more so when I I was in charge of a crew. And it wasn't something that was, as I said, um, regular, but... If some, particularly if someone was new, the, the attending an autopsy is um, is unpleasant anyway. But as you would be aware, uh, Homicide Squad attends every autopsy in a s- suspicious death or, or uh, uh, what was clearly a murder. Um, and sometimes, but when someone starts at the um, uh, at the squad and isn't used to that, um, it can be difficult, and they sometimes have to be carefully uh, introduced to it um, but also naturally uh, if uh, if on top of that they have young children then it makes it um, dis- more disturbing and um, you know, some people um, just decide and it's not uh, not a regular occurrence but some people decide that they just can't take it for long periods mm. and that's an extreme example but I think it's an example of your attitude in general, that, well, if you want something badly enough, you'll accept the hard bits, the ugly bits. Well, you look at it, um, um, your mind is on the professional side of it rather than the unpleasant side of it, and you can't dismiss the unpleasant side totally, but um, uh, you're there for a reason. Um, it's it's part of the job, and... Um, Yep, so you're focused on exactly what is being discovered that um, having been at the scene when sometimes the pathologist hasn't, um, just conferring with him the whole time, giving him background to help him with what he's doing um, and, of course, to uh, to identify things like the angles of wounds and the recovery of, um, of projectiles or you know, and the type of weapon that's used often if they if we if we need if we needed an autopsy done fairly quickly um, then uh, and, and it was a, a um, uh, knives involved perhaps then you would take the knife would be photographed and forensically examined at the scene and whoever was doing the autopsy would take um, would, would take the knife for the pathologist to look at it at the autopsy but it, it's a lot more and I think I've probably covered this with your book. It's, it's, although it's still unpleasant, it's a lot, uh, 
more comfortable at an autopsy these days to what it was at the old mortuary in Flinders Street Extension. Uh, these days you're seated on a, um, on, on a, high, on a high chair uh, looking through glass with an intercom to the pathologist. But uh, in those days you were sitting on a wooden stool beside the trolley and maybe have six or seven uh, bodies lined up, one of which was the victim of your murder. So, uh, yes, it, uh, it, uh, it, it's a lot more a lot more comfortable these days. You described that place as a house of horrors, the Flinders Street extension. Yes, well, of course, there's a mixture of things, not only what you can see, but um, um, sometimes things are a little more rough and ready than, than they are now. It's all much more refined and professional um, than, it, than it used to be. And often uh, bodies of all descriptions have been in situ for various periods of time before they're removed and uh, from a scene or a creek or whatever. And, um, yeah, the, the, the smell of rotting flesh is not terribly pleasant either. Thank you to patrons Gina, Sue Domsalar, Matilda Steelcliffe, Paul85, Vivian Compton, Leah Sabree, Kerry Winchcombe, Danielle Annanson, Stacey Nansen, and Joel Puckridge. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Coming up on Australian True Crime, find out which notorious Australian criminal featured on the invitation to Roland's retirement party in a party hat, no less. But first... There's been a change at the police academy in recent years that a lot of older and former members struggle with. A certain rite of passage that was a compulsory part of basic training is no longer compulsory. Roland has thoughts, and I dare say you will too. I think it's um, um, a retrograde step. Uh, My understanding is, recently, anyway, I'm assuming it's still the case, that recruits 
uh, don't attend autopsies. It's not compulsory. They can opt in now. Whereas well, back in Roland's day, not only was the mortuary very vastly different situation, but every recruit as part of their training had their day where they got on the bus and they went and watched an autopsy, whereas now it's an opt-in. I thought, honestly, it would just still be part of the training. No, it's very controversial with okay. the older Interesting. police, yeah. Well, the last thing you wanted a fatal accident or the scene of a, a suspicious death or a murder or whatever, uh, is one of the police members collapsing. Um, there were quite often collapses at the old mortuary when the recruits walked in to watch their first autopsy. And you can imagine it's a fairly, like with a doctor or a, or a nurse, um, it's um, a pretty daunting sort of experience. Um, but it's better that people are collapsing at the mortuary than in the middle of the street. And, and apart from the embarrassment of it, 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 you know, they have a job to do, and it's a it, it's a tough job. Mm. And you know, I'm, I'm not being dismissive of people's feelings, but um, if you can't do it, then you know, don't do it. I, I can I can remember when I was first a senior detective, a senior detective at the homicide squad, we had a um, we had a a, a young uh, girl who was raped and murdered and dropped down a chute at the Elizabeth Street Housing Commission flats. Um, and I was going down to do uh, to watch the autopsy and another detective at the squad uh, who hadn't been there very long, I can't remember whether he felt like fainting or he had fainted at, at an autopsy, but he was affected very adversely, which is you know, um, yeah, nothing to be embarrassed about. And um, he came over to me and uh, said, can I come with you? He said, I want to stay here and I'm going to have to crack Artie and, you know, the way I'm going to do it, I'm going to have to bite the bullet and do it. And so he came and uh, uh, he was fine. But the police have a, a job to do and certainly get used to what you're doing, but you just can't be catering... You can't be catering too much... You, take people's feelings into consideration and you help them and maybe you protect them from certain things and let them slowly become accustomed to something, but they can't be hidden away. I remember one Easter that uh, we were called out. This is when I was in charge of a crew and um, a, a woman and her teenage daughter had been found deceased uh, in a bed uh, in the in the mother's double bed, and um, they were um, in a reasonably advanced state of decomposition. They'd been there for a while, and um, so the, the uniformed police attended. They were covered up, so they didn't want to disturb it too much. Um, then the local detectives attended, and um, then they called us. So uh, we uh, wandered out there and wandered into the bedroom. And when I wandered in, it was, I won't go into details, but as we were talking about before with um, the most unpleasant, pungent odour uh, of decomposing flesh and uh, blowflies and, and all the rest. And anyway, when we, without disturbing too much, had a, had a look 
under the bedclothes and um, we then found a suicide note signed by both of them beside them. And I went out to the detectives and I said, well, what are we doing here? There's enough in the house to identify the writing. and There'd been a bit of history that may not, that would indicate that what had happened was not an enormous shock. And they said, oh, we just couldn't stand the smell. I was going to ask you about that, yeah, because I've heard some complaints along the lines of scenes not being processed thoroughly enough to the standard that detectives would like because the attending officers were squeamish, basically. Mm. I mean, we're more than... Uh, we have the the added resources uh, that were at our disposal and the expertise. We've seen a lot of um, scenes and, um, and bodies at scenes that you'd swear was a murder and ultimately there was an explanation for it and it might have been a suicide or natural causes or whatever. Um, but, um, and it gets back to police being exposed to as much as possible during their training, um, that they have a job to do and if they've done everything they possibly can and they think, well, I'm not terribly happy with this, um, then by all means call in the detectives. And if they're not too happy with this, by all means call in the homicide squad. But don't have a, have a gaze at a distance and for one reason or another say, I'll leave this to someone else. No, because then on the other hand, we've got so many cases building up on detectives' desks and families phoning and saying, what's happening? Why isn't anything happening or whatever? You don't have time, frankly. Well, what happened was that <clears throat> that Easter, what, what, what happened in those days... Uh, when I was in, in in charge of a crew, uh, there'd be an on-call crew, a backup crew and a third crew. Um, it was Easter, a lot of people were away. Uh, I used to do the roster, so you'd, you'd, people would have their, their requests for... You know, on, this is for all the crews, uh, and so you'd try to have those that were free. School holidays, the wives are up them, saying due, I want due, to go away. Due for a bit of a break, or a bit of a break, they might have had a heart slog. Look, I've been on call. Christmas, can I have Easter off or something? Anyway, that, but that that Easter, the on call crew, the backup crew, and the third crew were all called out. For memory, one or two are in the country because we covered the whole of Victoria. They still cover the whole of Victoria from Melbourne. Now. We, my crew, weren't on call one, on call two, or on call three. Um, I was able to scratch enough of, together to go out when I got the call saying the on call crews are uh, totally um, uh, committed. Can you scratch a few on your crew together to go and do this? So I think we ended up with five being called out. Wow! Over that that weekend, so. That added to the fact that we were called out unnecessarily. Mm. I wouldn't like to be those no. attending officers who hadn't had a look because they didn't like the smell. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we, we, there was a yeah a gentle a gentle <laughs> reminder, but um, yeah nothing nothing too serious. But I I would feel that if I was going to become a police officer, I would want to see all that stuff and do that because. Yeah, like what's the point of being a cop if you can't? Well, you think of... you wouldn't want to see it for the first time at a traffic accident no, not or at all. something like that. I feel like, and just to have that um, 
mentorship and, and having things explained. But I, I, I honestly thought that was just part and parcel of being at the academy where you, you go to an autopsy. It was in your day, wasn't it, Roland? Well, I think it should be exposed. And I'm, I, as I say, I'm not dismissing people's feelings and sensitivities, but it's a job where certain things are required. Um, and um, if you don't like the sight of blood, then you either get used to it yeah. or you find another job or you become a desk hugger for your career. <laughs> yeah. But um, if and, – and it's fair enough. Some people can't handle it. As I said, there are some people who, who – the most competent investigators, but um, they just can't put up with – or don't think that they'd be able to put up with the gruesome – uh, homicide investigation day after day and and distraught relatives day after day and or, or, which is which is fine we're all different yeah uh, most but, of us probably couldn't That's but a- but if you can't handle um, a dead body or the sight of blood or something then perhaps policing is is not for you yeah because it's quite likely you are at some stage going to encounter that maybe It makes you wonder what times. it is about policing that people are interested in if they don't want to go to the... Well, I gave that example before of the detective um, when, I, when I was a senior detective uh, at the squad asking to come to what was going to be a very unpleasant autopsy uh, because he was just so keen to stay, to do the job and he didn't have another moment's problem for the whole time he was there. But he just thought to himself, well, I'm going to have to crack hardy here and um, this is the way to do it. It was a pretty tough decision. It is. He knew that there was no place to hide. Yep, and he was passionate if you want to, and absolutely, about the work. And absolutely. he knew that he had to you know, find a way to get overcome that bit of it because it is a fairly small part of it, isn't it, in terms of time. I'm sure in terms of mental and emotional energy, it's, it's a big part of it. But in terms of the overall job, it's... Well, every... every Every job you get is going to involve either a body or an injury, the person who, who has the potential that they're going to, to die. And every, as I said before, um, every uh, death requires an autopsy and every autopsy requires at least one homicide detective to be present. Okay. So it's only homicide detectives. It's not like you could have another kind of police officer at an autopsy as well just no. to observe it. If, if for instance, if, if we um, ha- uh, had a murder uh, in regional Victoria and the body was being brought to Melbourne for the autopsy and the whole crew was investigating it in Wangaratta or Mildura or somewhere, then uh, you would get onto the office and say, I need someone to attend the autopsy. I'd give the briefing to that person so they knew the background of what had occurred and um, maybe have a conference with the pathologist Mm -hmm. beforehand. Uh, But it would be a homicide squad detective who would be uh, at the autopsy. What can you tell us about your time at the academy? What do you remember about that? Well, I started my training at what was called the police depot, (laughs) Uh, which, which is now, I think, a music school. How uh, old were you? Uh, 19. Mm. Uh, just turned 19, I think, yes. So I had my um, my first, I think, three months there. Um, 
and we'd run around the tan and swim in the Olympic pool and in our fatigues and uh, then we were one of the first uh, squads into Glen Waverley when it opened the place on the hill but uh, in in those days after the um, uh, the Roman Catholic Church moved out I think the uh, yeah the the only building was the old cream brick towered building um, and then there were just some wooden sheds and buildings spread around that we'd do uh, some of our training in, um, pretend scenes of this and scenes of that. Uh, I can remember sewage leaking, leaking onto the oval when we were doing our press-ups. I can <laughs> remember blowflies and snails in the cabbage and the lettuce. Uh, we used to... Um, in those days, there wasn't a pool, of course, and we used to to uh, swim and uh, do our life saving uh, at a at a boys' home in um, in Tally Ho. And uh, we uh, were told on one occasion that it had been discovered that a couple of the boys at the boys' home were urinating in the pool when they knew the police were coming. <laughs> okay. so, um, that was all pretty comforting too. So it was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was a, a harder slog, I think, than than it is now. And uh, no opting in or out. No, of, uh... no and um, <laughs> yeah, and and no no head patting and bum rubbing from the instructors either. If um, you know, if you're having a bad day, from one of some of the stories that I've heard in recent years, <laughs> everything's become more politically correct. But uh, yeah, you did the wrong thing, or you weren't trying hard enough, and you. You knew all about it. Yeah. Yep. So it was only three months. It was months. more like the army, I think, then. Than... Yeah. Was it only three months, did you say? Uh, 20 weeks, I think it oh, was. Wow. And then did everyone go to Russell Street, was that? Yes, in those days yeah. we did. To um, HQ. Yeah, everybody would go to um, to either Russell Street Police Station or to um, what was called then City Traffic. So in, in those days, as a lot of older people would rem- remember, um, on all the main intersections, uh, there'd be a couple of policemen there all day and into the night directing the traffic with those white sleeves on. And, yeah. Um, and that was city traffic that was based, I think, in Elizabeth Street in those days. I've seen those pictures of the... I've yeah. seen it sleeves. happen again, like, in the last couple of years, just for, like, a day or so, they'll get the young recruits out and make them direct oh, they traffic. Still, they still do the training for yeah. directing traffic. Um, but... Uh, they were basically we at Russell Street would do the. I was there for uh, uh, six months before I transferred for the first time. But um, we would do the uh, the uh, foot patrols, twenty four hours a day. The Burke Street Patrol, two of us, or the the um, Swanston Street Patrol, or whatever. Um, we'd walk around one up. Would walk around Parliament House twenty four hours a day. And if you weren't at the so- a specific spot when the duty officer came, you got a slap on the wrist. You had to be time everywhere you walked around Parliament House. Then the forensic laboratory was on the corner of Spring Street and Little Burke Street. So another one of the duties for the Russell Street Police would be manning the switchboard there after hours, one of those old cord-inserting <laughs> switchboards. Uh, but now, of course, they're out at McLeod. Um, so... Um, 
yeah, there are all sorts of duties that, that they would do. And then at the end of that, you start to put in for where you want to go, don't you? And you hope yes. that you get where you want to go. Yes. Where did you put in for? I put in for Camberwell originally. I, I ultimately wanted to go to near the suburban police station, but it was near, not far from where I uh, grew up, so it was familiar to me. So I went there for a couple of years. And um, in fact, I was the, my great claim to fame is that I was the last policeman to direct the traffic at Camberwell Junction the day the lights went on. I don't know if that oh. is your great claim to fame, frankly, so that, but maybe your first so one. There'd be people who couldn't imagine Camberwell Junction without traffic lights. Oh my but God. Uh, no, I did the, the last day, the day that traffic lights went on. Oh. But um, yeah, that, that was interesting. We'd had to go down there every morning and night and if we got there a few minutes late in the morning or, or, or in the evening, evening peak, it, it was like a jigsaw puzzle. You, you'd, have to, you'd have to be crawling across bonnets of some of the cars to be moving oh them a few God. inches here and a few inches there oh with the morons that were driving them, not, <laughs> not foreseeing what was about to occur. But um, so, so that was interesting. We, we, a couple of the guys, fortunately not myself, but a couple collapsed there because um, a couple of the roads there, Burke Road and and, um, and Riversdale Road particularly, come down into uh, into a sort of a basin and the fumes would build up on a hot oh, yeah. day. With all the, and a couple collapsed there. The worst that happened, I st- stood there a few days in ankle-deep water. That was as uncomfortable oh, as it yeah. became yeah, for it me. But we used to have those capes. And in the summer we would um, we'd have the, um, the as they called us roofing nails, the old white helmets. But um, yeah, few few near misses. The the old trams fortunately had running boards, but I can remember one day that um, that uh, it was a bit windy, cold, blowy, wet morning, and I was down there in my cape, and um, the old trams had had the running boards and those metal advertising things on the side. And um, one of the uh, advertising metal sheets had bent and come loose mm. and it caught my cape. And fortunately, I felt it pull and saw what happened and leapt onto the running board. And there's a pedestrian crossing on Burke Road heading north. And I think it took me until that pedestrian crossing to to unhook my cape and run back to the middle of the intersection. Yeah. It sounds like it could have ripped your head off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, it... I thought, oh, that's a bit of a near miss, but uh, there, there was a very sad um, situation that happened around the same time. And I, um, because what what would happen, and the reason you were so close to the tram, is that in those days, and of course those running boards protruded, but in those days, the trams on Riversdale Road and Burke Road would pass each side of you, so you were mm, between. Wow. You yeah. had about three inches each. God. So between you and the running boards, if both trams passed you at the same time, um, and there was a very around the time that I had my hook up uh, with my cape, uh, very sadly a um, a city traffic policeman in a similar position in the city was hit by a tram when they were passing him both ways, and and in fact he never never recovered. No, I can't and imagine. He, he died a couple of years ago, I think, very sadly. Uh, is my vintage. Um, but it was a result mainly of his situation where he came off far worse than me, obviously. Um, the instruction was the trams weren't permitted to pass each side of the policeman, that if the if they're approaching 
at the same time, mm. um, uh, then uh, one had to st- stop until the other one had passed through. So, so dangerous. It always amazes me in Australia now we have so many rules and people say we're a nanny state and all that, which I agree with to a certain extent. But then you think it was so recently that we were as loose as that. We wouldn't allow policemen to stand in the middle of an intersection with six inches grace between two moving trams every day. It sounds so stressful too, directing traffic, how you describe it. I think I would be better attending, you know, <laughs> autopsies than actually. That would stress me yeah, out more doing traffic. Oh, like, it's all part of life's rich tapestry. You yeah. look back and you look back and you say, oh, you know, that was a bit of fun at times. Yeah. But, uh, oh, but yeah. I mean, some mornings you go down there and it was a bit of fun. You'd be wondering what was going to happen. I remember one of the, it wasn't me, but one of them, um, a tram actually did almost run the policeman over. Mm. And um, he, he chased it along Camborough Road, blowing his whistle, and dragged the driver out and dragged him up the police station and left the tram in the middle of Camborough Road. <laughs> oh, no, 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 uh, that, no. That caused a bit of a flurry at the local depot. I mean, yeah. The whistles, I just imagined. Do, do police have whistles anymore? Probably not. No, but, okay. But, but um, we all, yeah, no. all had them, like the old umpire whistles on yeah. the fingers and um, yeah. and uh, yeah, blew them to remind someone that they weren't allowed to turn right <laughs> or they weren't allowed to do this or do that. But, oh, that you were coming. But, um, no, it was a bit of fun, something different. Yeah. But uh, didn't you go into when homicide it wasn't really, raining. Didn't you go into homicide really young for some reason, your first stint? Uh, yes, after um, after my couple of years at Campbell, I was at Paran for a couple of years at the old Greville Street police station and that's where I was as a sergeant later. Um, but... Uh, I f- left Paran to go to the CIB in 1978. So that was five years after um, joining the police force. Yeah, that's very young. But um, no, but that, that that was the average. Was it at, at the time? Yeah, okay. I can't. I don't know what it is now, but that was the average. Mm. But um, again, the first place you went to as a detective was. Um, was Russell Street, mm. what they called the Bull Ring. That's right, the Bull Ring. Russell Street CIB. Mm. And all the squads were there at that time, of course, or most of them. And um, uh, the first thing you wanted to do at the Bull Ring was to get out of the Bull Ring, mm. um, just to, either to get to a suburban division that might have been where you wanted to go or to a squad, although you had to usually uh, spend a fair bit of time at a busy division before you could go to a squad. What, why did you want to get out? What, what was the bull ring? What is that? Is it just like a really competitive kind of... Well, it was basically the city CIB. Yeah. So it so sounds like a lot of young men... They just deal with basic crime around the city. Yeah. But from the coppers, it's, it sounds to me like a lot of young bulls, a lot of young men in there trying to prove themselves, very competitive environment, trying to prove themselves and get promoted essentially or move to the next level of where they want to be. Well, is that what it was like? Yeah, well, yeah. More so, I think, was the reason that uh, they they might want to have uh, gone to a, uh, a detective's division closer to home, mm-hmm. perhaps. Um, yeah. Or So everyone's trying to get out of there, basically, in terms Normally of... Normally like- you had to go to a division for a while before you went to a squad and you would probably get... Um, a broader range of experience at places like, um, um, or in any of the inner suburban stations or outer stations, maybe Frankston, Dandenong, Preston, 
broad meadows. Yeah. Broad uh, meadows gets brought up all the time. Where yeah. you would get you would get a um, a broader range of experience than just around the city. So there are different reasons for people wanting to um, wanting to leave the bullring. Um, but it was interesting. I mean, you wouldn't do it these days, but they used to have what was called a view room in the morning. And the view room was a room, it was like a, um, like a little theatrette with sort of wooden bench seats at different levels facing this stage. And there'd be lights on the stage. And all the detectives from Russell Street, the squads and the Russell Street CIB, would go over in the mornings to have a view of who was arrested overnight. So the, the head of the consorting squad would stand up there at the lectern and it, give a full resume of this person. And The actual person was The actual stage. person was brought out, oh, no put, under the, put under the floodlights, no. and if he didn't want to come, then uh, there'd be a couple of consorting squad or breaking squad detectives who'd help him onto the stage. I mean, you imagine that these days... But that was that was the view room a couple of days That's a week. That's outrageous. So like potentially, which was interesting. Vic Pierce has walked out onto the stage, and he, he, he probably would be more likely one of the ones that was assisted. But yeah, uh, and so everyone's <laughs> just sitting there, uh, why? Just to see if any of you blokes looking for Vic for any reason because he's here. <laughs> just to let you know who's being, you know, the consorting squad then um, were monitoring criminals and yeah. see who was mixing with whom. We had consorting laws and if uh, people were associating, undesirables associating with other undesirables, then if they're doing it too often, then that was an offence. So, yes. So, it, uh, so to it, let things, you know... That... Things were more controlled than probably they are now. Yeah, because like they haven't actually committed a crime is what you're saying. All they've done. Oh, to no, be... the ones that the ones that were brought into the view room had been in the cells overnight. Yeah, they would have been arrested for something overnight. Yeah, but consorting but in consorting and of itself was wasn't... just associating with. Um, yeah. With with other criminals repeatedly. So it's yeah. just intelligence gathering a lot. They're just mm. like working out who's who and who's. Familiarise with... yourself with people. And... Sounds it's kind surveilling of exciting. People. Who's who in the zoo? Who's who mm. in the zoo? Who the but... players are? Yeah. It's surveilling people, which today would not be legal, but it's, would it? Uh, well, yeah, probably from a from a from a a rights perspective, you wouldn't be able to put people up like that in that sort of fashion these days. But you could get you could still get around and kind of just keep your eye out on things. Like, do they still the cops still do? I guess surveillance, but oh, consorting. Squad, uh, what's that well, now? Naturally, there's an interest in, um, in in who's associating with who. There's yeah. no doubt about that. Yeah. I'm sure it's just not called a consorting squad. Yes, yeah, No, different. the consorting squad and the breaking squad are long gone. What's a breaking yeah. squad? No, they used to look into safe breakers and that mm. sort of thing. They used to work pretty closely with the... Um, with a consorting squad and, um, you know, pickpockets at the races and all that sort of thing. But um, both very useful squads in their time. Mm. Very effective. I still don't understand the... I'm missing I'm missing a link. So we've got Vic Pierce on the stage under the lights with all the detectives looking at him. So how we find... What's it got to do with consorting? So are we saying we arrested him with Emily Webb? Did you guys know he hangs out with Emily Webb? Is that the purpose? Is that what? Oh, they'd read. 
they they'd read out what he had been arrested for, just so everybody who he knows was with, right. what his criminal history was. Yep, just to get it clear in everyone's minds, this particular incident. All all education. Yes, I see. Okay, so, so that then oh, next okay. Monday when we arrest him again or another bloke for a separate issue, we're joining the dots on who's no, who and all the connections. Recognise him when you're out on the street and, you know, what areas mm. he might frequent. And oh, yeah. see. Sounds I a bit understand. like a handover when nurses hand over to the next Patients. shift. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hand over. I understand. So people, that's how people become very known to police, isn't it? I mean, we're talking a long, long time ago. Mm. I wonder who the uh, frequent uh, actors on the stage were for the the View. It's always the same names, though. I mean, even we know that every. It seems like every story you tell, certainly from those couple of decades, one of the most famous, this is what made me laugh before when you said your claim to fame, Roland, was being the last guy to direct the traffic at the intersection. And I, the first thing that popped into my mind was the photo of you escorting Mr. Rent-A-Kill up the stairs to court. And I thought, yeah, I don't know if the traffic directing is your claim to fame. You have been involved in some of the biggest cases in Australian crime in modern history. And and that photo of you escorting him is is extraordinary. The one with the party hat or the one No, the, that was the, I know and <laughs> it was used for as an invitation to a party oh, God. later. <laughs> for Roland, not yeah. for Mr. Rentakill. Christopher Dale Flannery, also known as you can see a copy of that photo, the one without the party hat, on our Facebook and Instagram pages. And next week on Australian True Crime, you'll hear more from Roland Legg when we discuss a couple of his most intense cases, including the murders of Lauren Barry and Nicole Collins, also known as the Bega Schoolgirls, and the harrowing case of Jaden Lesky. That's next week on Australian True Crime. Thank you to our guest, Roland Legg, who still has many stories in the tank for our live show at the Yarraville Club on April 8. Extra tickets have been released. Check the show notes and our Facebook page for the link. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. 
Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.